If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Like this podcast? Why not try Double Century, my podcast on the history of cricket? Want to know why England's first test keeper was in jail? Or the moment when we learned to hit the ball over our heads? Find Double Century in all of your greatest podcast apps. This week on Red Inca, we're discussing why LBWs have changed. The way they are given, who gets them, pretty much everything else about them, really. So today I got someone on who is equally interested in this very nerdy topic as I am. I am Karthik Krishnaswamy. I'm a cricket writer with ESPN Trick Info, former colleague of Jared's, and that's why I'm here, probably. KK wrote a piece on Crick Info about this. And so here we discuss how batsmen's techniques have changed, what bowlers are doing better, and how tailenders are finally getting a good go of it. I find LBWs are quite interesting because we don't go back that far in history, but we can tell, I think anyone who's been watching cricket for 15 years, maybe even 20 years, can certainly tell that LBWs changed a lot. My favorite thing about the LBW that's changed, KK, is the fact that the stride, you used to basically put a big stride down the wicket and that just meant there was no way that ball could ever go on to hit the stumps ever again. Yeah, that's the general accepted thing that you got a big front foot stride in and umpires were reluctant to give you out. But from my own watching experience, I've only been watching since the 90s. And I don't remember too many batsmen really getting away with that plumb LBWs. Sure, like, you know, you got a big stride in and you were struck somewhere, maybe in line with off stump, maybe just outside. Those, yeah, you were likely to probably, like, be given no doubt. But the 90s were the time when, especially Anil Kumble and Shane Vaughan, they extensively got a lot of batsmen LBW. It was already changing, I feel. If ever there was a time when you could just plonk your front foot down, it was probably already beginning to change then, at least by the late 90s. Yeah, I think you're right. When you look at the data, it actually starts well before the DRS. And I think it probably starts once we have super slow-mo cameras and uh, pitch maps and, you know, the stripe down the middle of the wicket and all those sorts of things. And if you're an umpire depending on what kind of umpire you are. But there's, if you go back and look at anything, you'd probably be like, well, that actually was going on to here. And then once Channel 9 sort of brought in all the gimmicks and then was it Channel 4, I think, brought them in not long after that, they eventually went to everywhere. So you could see that umpires were self-correcting before DRS. I think that's undoubtedly true. And that came up in, in your piece as well, didn't it? Yeah. I remember reading also, I didn't use it in the piece, but uh, I was looking for like what people had said around the time DRS was coming in and stuff. And Daryl Harper mentioned just before the first BRS test, he mentioned that because of ball tracking, we're already changing the way we're like, but he, he seemed very like certain that he personally was giving more LBWs than before, especially balls that were going 50-50 on hitting leg stump. So it, it definitely had begun changing with various technologies coming in, like you just mentioned. And just the way the game was being discussed in the commentary box by fans, by the newspapers the next day or whatever. I think that 
influences umpires whether they want it to or not it's bound to right yeah no i think you're right i think leg stump took a little while i think i think that the stride down the wicket probably you're right maybe late 90s people started to work out that well, wait a minute these balls are all going on to hit the stumps spinners don't actually bounce the ball over the stumps that often there aren't many suleiman bends in the world for instance there's a throwback name for you but i think leg stump probably took a little bit longer just because we are so you trained even i don't know if you ever umpired but you know in australia we we generally at the lower level of cricket, especially, you would have one professional umpire. I say professional, someone who was paid and had a free weekend. And then at the other end, you would quite often have a player who'd already gone out or hadn't batted yet. And then you get to a point where sometimes the umpire doesn't turn up or the umpire doesn't want to umpire from both ends. So you end up doing it. And you're trained like really early on that anything hitting around middle and leg is sliding down. And I think if there's anything that we learned again, it's just that actually so many extra balls hit the leg stump that we probably before all this happened, I, you, there'll be like young cricket fans being like, why do people think everything's going down leg side? Whereas for us, that's kind of what we were taught, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's just a case of like, we look at doubt a little differently because we've seen a lot of like, especially Hawkeye and uh, over and over, you see a ball that's kind of hit a batsman in line with middle and leg where your first instinct earlier would have been, okay, that's doubtful. But you've seen many such instances and Hawkeye coming up and many such instances showing you that, you know, maybe it would have hit leg stump more often than not. So that gradual process, we've kind of like learned to see it a little differently. Yeah. And so when I looked it up, 2005 was the first year. So basically until then, pace bowlers did quite well with LBW. Spinners struggled a little bit and didn't get as high a percentage of their wickets. And in 2005, they completely switched places, and it was a dramatic change as well. So spin started taking a lot more percentage of their wickets with LBWs, and pace started taking a lot less. So you could literally see there hadn't been a change in the amount of LBWs in cricket, really. That, that was more or less the same over the last 20 years I must have looked at. But the big change happened to be between spin and pace. And it seems that essentially what we've been able to tell – and a lot of this, as, as we've talked about, is not DRS, but what we've just been able to tell is that seamers actually do bounce the ball over the stumps quite a lot and maybe don't straighten the ball as much. For a spinner, straighten the ball, which gives them a good chance of doing that, and they don't bounce over the stump. Is that what you sort of saw in your research as well? Yeah, yeah your cutoff point was 2005, and uh, I took mine to be 2008, like the date of the very first DRS test, and I did 10 years before that and since then, and also the last five years, just to see if there's been either course correction or because DRS has become like pretty much universal and since 2016 it's been pretty much universal. So whether that's caused it to spike further and yeah, my I, uh, Shiva Jairaman uh, from Trickinfo, he got the stats out and like it's exactly as you say, the overall percentage is remarkably similar to what it was before. It's gone up for spinners, it's come down for pass bowlers. So whether that's there could be so many factors behind this, like mm. changing techniques, whether bowlers are bowling differently, whether spinners certainly are bowling differently, which is also a contributing factor to their getting more LBW. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation there. Mm. Are they bowling differently because they think they're getting more LBWs now or are they getting more LBWs now because they're bowling differently? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing you talk about in the piece, which I think is fair to say this particular kind of bowlers have changed, is off spinners. So they bowl a lot straighter than they used to bowl around the wicket a lot more to left-handers. And they're certainly getting a lot more LBWs, aren't they? Yeah. It's like off-spin is just 
transformed completely. It's no longer what it used to be. And uh, Graham Swan is the biggest example of that. Ashwin as well gets a lot of LBWs and a lot of them look to beat the inside edge rather than the outside of the left-hander. Like Daniel Vettori started bowling quite differently towards the end of his career. Possibly because of like injuries coming in and he wasn't turning the ball as much. But his line and his mode of attack changed quite a bit as well. The Graham Swan thing is quite interesting. Are you a basketball fan? Uh, not at all. So there was a big change in basketball. I can't remember the year. It was around 2002, 2003 in the NBA, where they basically stopped players from being able to do hand checks on people on the perimeter of the court. So it meant that to defend someone, you couldn't lay your hands on them, which obviously means that if you're a very quick player, that's a huge advantage for you because a stronger player now can't shepherd you in. There was a guy called Steve Nash, who at that stage was a good basketballer. He was already an all-star, but no one was thinking this guy's a legend. And he almost straight away became a legend and won, I think, two MVP awards after that. I saw Graham Swan bowl in first-class cricket in that period before he got selected. And I saw almost nothing in his game that I thought, this is a guy who's about to destroy international teams. I didn't think he'd take that many wickets. I thought he was a clever bowler and good. That change completely changed his career and his trajectory because of that one little thing. I'm not sure he would have gone on to be what, let's say England's second or third best ever spinner of all time if it wasn't for that thing. And you see the delivery that you're talking about, I forget, he's got a name for it, doesn't it? But it's basically like an underspinner that he used to do to the left-handers. He spins it like a flying UFO where the seam is kind of like a disc parallel to the ground almost and it kind of drifts in and then hits the leather and skids on. And then you see someone like Shane Watson. So Shane Watson's technique would have been perfect up until what? 2000, 2001, 2002. Big front leg down the wicket, whether it be to spin or pace, always putting some doubt in the umpire's mind. And then he suddenly has this change in his career. And I'm not sure there's any other batsman that we saw actually be a, uh, a story for how much it can af- affect the way that you bat. Essentially, if your front leg's in the way now, and you talked about techniques a little bit before, we can go into them further, but if your front leg's in the way now, you're a victim rather than a batsman. And that wasn't the case when Watson was learning the game. I mean, if you go back and watch batsmen from the 80s and uh, in the 90s, most of them, the initial, the trigger movement was always front and across. Some of them would maybe go back and across, but front and across was far more prevalent then than it is now. And uh, yeah, Watson, I mean, he wasn't quite so nimble with his, he kind of plant his foot and then struggle to like, mm. you know, move, shift it aside or like transfer his weight back or whatever. Like uh, he wasn't quite as nimble as say Ricky Ponting who had a similar front and across movement. But yeah, like you don't see that now. And Watson would have probably averaged a little more earlier in his career. Yeah, I think it probably affected his entire career when you look back on it. Because in T20 cricket, it doesn't matter as much that front blasting because you're just trying to smack the ball anyway. But in, in one-day cricket, especially in test cricket, it's a really interesting thing. You talk in the piece about Mike Hussey and his technique. Could you take me through what you meant there? Yeah, so bat-up has become the predominant way batsmen set themselves up right now. And that's happened fairly quickly. Over like 10, 15 years, everybody is now bat-up. You can... Who's bat down right now? Pujara, Warner, probably, I think. Yeah, there'd be a couple of Australian holdouts. I can't think of many England players, are there? No one in England, as yeah. far as I can. Yeah, kind of alternates depending on the bowler. Mm. Um, yeah, not many like bat down batsmen left. And 
part of the reason i mean hasi mentioned that in like a in a piece that was on the cricket monthly and he'd mentioned that he made that change he started his career as a bat down player he was finding that his head was falling across a little too far and like he was getting lbw quite often because of that and uh, therefore he changed to bat up and that's probably one reason why a lot of batsmen have gone to bat up as well Let's just briefly explain it for people who don't understand what we mean. So essentially, when the bowler's coming in, there are two kinds of batsmen. There is a batsman who still has to bat on the ground to the very last minute, behind their back foot generally, sometimes inside their feet. And then there's the batsman who holds it up more like a baseballer, which when I grew up, it was like Graham Gooch was an alien because he did it and he had such a pronounced way of doing it. And I remember I had a very Brian Lara backlift. So my bat was on the ground and then just as the bowler would come in, it would be next to my head. And a coach came along to me and said, you can't control that. There's no way you're going to be able to control hitting the ball. And it completely changed the way I batted. I became such a better offside batsman afterwards. And I had better balance. And he, the, the coach said to me, look, you can hit the ball hard. You don't need the extra, in my case, probably an extra three feet because my backlift was ridiculous. The, the Brian Lara backlift did not help me at all. And, and what happened was teams would just keep yorking me until I missed one. So I'd hit a couple of fours and sixes when they'd miss the yorker. But once I hit the yorker, I'd miss one. And it does completely change the way that you bat. I remember um, Ed Cowan's written about it as well. And He's I think back he, and forth, hasn't he? Yeah, he went full circle on it. And it's a really interesting thing. But that's a really noticeable thing. And you talked about before that batsmen don't go across with their front leg as much as they used to, and they don't go forward as much. There's probably about, what, five or six movements that batsmen, or, sorry, not movements, I'd say technical adjustments from the bat uh, to to the hands, to the feet, that have all happened in the last couple of years. I think some of them probably have come across from T20 cricket as well, where you want to stay a sort of leg side of the ball a little bit to swing through the bat. But I think DRS and that sort of thing must have a part of that. And when I, when I say DRS, I played club cricket sort of as all this technology was coming through. Umpires started to give more LBWs even in club games. I don't think in the first, when I stopped playing the first time, I must have been about 22, 23. So that was 2002. Up until that point, I have a handful of LBWs I ever got when a batsman was on the front foot. When I came back to playing cricket later, oh, I was getting them everywhere. I mean, really, I think the way that batsmen had changed, but also the way that we looked at it had changed. Yeah. And did you start bowling differently as well? Yes. I developed, you know, the uh, Afridi and Kumble habit, and I suppose Warren has it as well, but it's where it looks like a leg spinner. I suppose it's a slider, really. I mean, I don't know if mine is the official slider, but I have an ability... Yeah, Afridi and Kumble do it differently to Warren. Warren's always went sort of dead straight, whereas they had the ability to drift it in and then skid it on on the arm. So it's almost like an in-swinger, but it looks like it's going to spin away. And yeah, I, I invented that ball. Well, not invented it. I tried it in the 90s and hit a bunch of pads and never got an LBW, and it sort of disappeared. And then when I came back, I did it again. So you see how these little things affect even cricketers as terrible as me. So yeah. Robolinda has become, you know, part of uh, modern cricket writing, perhaps because of COVID lockdown. But he, I think for people like you and me, he was beforehand. Do you not find it amazing to go back and have a look at the Robolinda footage and how often batsmen are just hit roughly around the stumps and the umpires just show no interest in them? Yeah, but the opposite is also like true. You see decisions that you just wouldn't get now <clears throat> or, you know, that would be like, you think of them as 50-50s now, but the commentators are like, that's plum and they leave it at that. There's no further discussion and the umpires like instantly give the batsman out. He walks away. There's no fuss, nothing. And like, and you're like, 
wait, that wasn't that clear cut. Both ways, both ways. You go back in time and watch those videos, and like the um, conventions around LBW have just flipped completely. There was a lot of LBW decisions around leg stump that have changed, but the other one was I'm very fascinated with heights. You watch those Ro Belinda clips, and you can actually see the ball hitting above the level of the stumps over and over and over again, and yet. The umpires are just triggering these batsmen out and they're being hit on the thigh pad. Yeah, there was that Matthew Elliott one wasn't there, like uh, Donald bowling to him and he shoulders arms. It, he's bowling from over the wicket, mm-hmm. line of pitches in line and straightens. You can tell, like, there's no way that's going to, like, definitely going over. But, like, instantly the umpire gives it out and you kind of think, okay, he's been given out because he shouldered arms, not because of the delivery. Well, so that's an interesting one. A, you know, that the minute Matthew Elliott shoulders arms at a ball, that it must be missing the stumps because he never made a mistake, right? So you know that that's law, but we'll move past that. You don't see many batsmen now giving out LBW when they haven't played a shot. And you see over and over again, teams still review them because they still have that optimistic thing. But umpires, again, have been trained. I think that might be one of the last things the umpires came around to was because I think there's a really good one, and I'm trying to think who it is, but it's one of the Roe Belinda clips I was looking at recently. And you hear Ian Chappell go, look, it's probably missing the stumps, but if you're not going to play a shot, you deserve to be out. And it's like, whoa, no one would say that anymore. We would now say, if the ball's not hitting the stumps, that's a good leave. But we didn't think that way. And I was trained that way as a cricketer. Again, you know, you were told, if you're not playing a shot, you're giving the umpire a chance to give you out LBW. So I just don't think that we do that. So there's another part of LBWs that seem to have gone away. And I have looked into that with CrickViz, and CrickViz basically say that the data does back that up. The batsmen just aren't giving out LBWs as much now when they're leaving the ball. Yeah, it tells you that batsmen, if they are leaving it, then their judgment isn't wrong most of the time. No, and realistically, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because how could you survive as a top-order batsman and be wrong that often? It's all right for Mitchell Johnson. I mean, Mitchell Johnson was the worst lever of a ball I've ever seen. He could leave a ball and get bowled leg stump. But for most top-order batsmen, they should at least know where their off stump is unless the ball does something bad or they're rattled. Yeah, yeah. Length comes into the picture as well, right? They're probably not going to leave it if it's, say, six inches fuller or a foot fuller. No, that makes sense. And there's something else that you wrote about, which was the rewarding good bowling. Yeah, so comes back to that thing, like, you know, the batsman's made a mistake or the bowler's bowled a really good ball. And back before umpiring chains with technology, I think it was way more subjective. It was, like, I mentioned this Mushtaq Ahmed delivery in the 92 World Cup semi-final against New Zealand. And uh, Andrew Jones was a batsman. And... Uh, Basically, the previous ball had been like this lighted leg break outside off stump and Jones had looked to drive and it spun a mile, beat him, beat Moen Khan and went for four buys. And the next ball, it's quicker and it's like, if you look at it now, you're, you're like, it's pitching outside leg stump. But he kind of plays back and like misses it completely and it's a really good ball and it almost feels like he's just been rewarded for that. But then you you look at the umpire at that point, who would have never in his life seen like the pitch mat, right? So what is exactly in line and what is not is like a much fuzzier concept back then. And like even Tony Gray on commentary says that's pitched around about next term. <laughs> he says that, but he also doesn't think that's a reason to not give the batsman up. Yeah. So it's rewarding a good piece of bowling. And uh, it feels like that used to happen a lot more before that. And yeah. it also depended on the quality of the batsman and the quality of the shot 
well, or... Yeah, you talked about the tail ender paradox, didn't you? Which is, I think everyone in cricket knows, anyone who's ever played cricket and or watched a fair bit of it knows that if you're a tail ender and you're hit on the pads, you're about a 50-50 chance half the time of being given out. And we see some of the worst decisions still. I would say most decisions in cricket have been fixed. And I think umpiring's probably never been better. But tail enders still get some comical decisions. And it has to be that that sort of let's move the game forward no one's here to see you, but that whole thinking behind it, that, for whatever reason, hasn't disappeared in the way that other things have. And so DRS has allowed us to correct some incredible decisions, hasn't it? It has, yeah. And probably it's because those decisions have been corrected. You do see umpires being slightly more conservative, although, yeah, they are likely to give a tail ender out of the same sort of delivery, hit in same sort of line, whatever than a top order batsman, but it still does happen. But I would wager that it happens far less than it used to. Yeah, no, I I think you're right. There is that thing. And cricket is such a long game. And I don't think we factor that into like the mental side sometimes. You know, when you're at a game and everyone in the press box is like, why have they not declared? And it's because we've been stuck in Nagpur or Leeds for four days. And we all know where the game is going. And Everyone wants to leave early. Someone wants to play golf. Someone else wants to get back to their family and all that sort of stuff. And I think that that is almost built into that with the umpires as well. Not that they're going, we need a golf game, but it's like quick game's a good game. And when you get to the tail enders, it's subconscious. You're right. Umpires is really interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen it and I've tried and find the link to it, but there's an incredible article I think was written in the Associate of Statisticians book. And it's all about different umpires and their umpiring. So we don't talk about it as much anymore, but cricketers talk about this a lot. They talk about umpires who are out umpires and umpires who are not out umpires. And this is a real big thing amongst cricketers. If you were to interview 10 cricketers now, they'd all probably off the record, definitely off the record, but be able to give you a name of an umpire who just gives out LBWs all the time and another one who won't. And the same with court behinds and everything. And so this guy went through first-class records of English county umpires. And you do see that there is definitely amount of umpires who, they just have um, a different outlook of cricket, which is one umpire will say, that has to be absolutely dead plumb before I'm going to give it out. And the other one's like, eh, close enough, I'll give that out. That is another thing that we don't talk about. But has to be changing in modern cricket just because you now have to, as you said, make an objective decision as much as possible. Whereas before it was like, eh, this bowler's been bowling well, he probably deserves one here. You can't even do that anymore. Yeah, you don't hear that spoken about much in commentary now, do you? Like in the 90s, everyone would be like, oh, Dickie Bird, he's a not outer. Like, yeah. You know, that used to come up a lot. We just don't hear it now. And it's like umpires' personalities have kind of receded to the background a little bit, possibly because of technology well it's, it's such a different job so i interviewed dicky bird a few months ago and then you get this with a lot of old umpires they just say what is left to do on the ground now and dicky will say like he was quite honest in saying look the decisions are better we probably got a lot more wrong and we focus on the mistakes now because we'd be able to see them in this sort of minuscule thing but i watch first class cricket i watch women's cricket associate levels let me tell you the umpires at the top level are by far the best umpires in the world with the best backup systems that they can have. The umpiring at the level below and the level below is dreadful. So we are actually getting better umpiring now. You know, it's a very, very interesting job. Like, for instance, I've already done a podcast about this with Adam Collins, but the fact that they stopped calling no balls in test cricket at a time, that's a weird thing to, you know, say to an umpire, which is that front foot. Like, imagine saying to the guy in the long jump, you don't have to worry about that anymore. We got that. Don't even wave your flag. 
forget the little beep in your ear. Just sit there and smile and wear a lovely polo shirt. And at the end of the day, make sure that, you know, you haven't spilt anything on your trousers. So we have kind of created that a little bit with umpiring. But the other side is that umpiring is just better than it's ever been. Would you not agree? I definitely see so. I mean, given all the scrutiny and given all the criticism they get, and a lot of it for marginal decisions, right? Commentators get DRS wrong all the time. They keep saying it's if it's hitting, it should be out. What's this umpire's fault? All of this type of nonsense. And um, despite all of that, and despite the pressures they're in, like you really don't see that many decisions being overturned. No, I think that's right. I think that's very fair. Yeah. The other th- interesting thing that I was reading uh, that few months back, someone had uh, from Trick Info interviewed uh, Simon Toffel and the subject of umpires on field. Actually, that was when they were discussing, should we have a separate umpire just for no balls? Mm-hmm. Like sitting up alongside the third umpire and looking at the square on view and like calling after every ball. And Toffel said, as an umpire for me, it was very important that I did look at the front foot landing. Because not only did it tell me whether it was a uh, no ball or not, I could also tell, okay, the bowler is bowling from this wide on the crease. Yeah. And therefore, the angle. And so, if there's an LBW decision, it helps me there as well. I can understand that. I think he's still wrong. And he should certainly do it with another umpire who's specialized on it, especially as we get bowlers over 90 miles an hour and the ability to put your head down and you'll hit up. I think it's tough, but I do understand that general thing. All this sort of brings about very rarely on this podcast, despite the fact that this entire podcast has been in COVID. We very rarely talk about COVID. But if we were to go back to non-neutral umpires now, which we might have to, for a few series anyway, I think we've never been in a better situation to have local umpires. I mean, there was a very good reason that we changed, but a lot of those reasons kind of no longer exist anymore. They don't exist because... We have neutral umpires. That's the first thing. But because we have an elite panel that is as good as it is, the only concern is like whether we are in the best possible position to not have neutral umpires. Yeah, definitely. But on the other hand, there are certain countries, and I speak especially of India, who haven't had like that many elite umpires at all over the last couple of decades. So if, say, there's a India home test and they need to find like two umpires, they would have to look outside of the test panel. No, you're right. Is it just SW on it right now, I think? I think you might be right. And I think there's a couple of countries that probably find that. And it is a very, it's a very good point. And also, if you are not used to umpiring with DRS as a system, how does that work? Because if you bring in a couple of umpires who aren't used to being the third umpire, aren't used to working with the technology as much, we might see other mistakes there as well. So uh, there is certainly that. I just think that because we can get to that point, it'd be interesting to see how this goes. I mean, cricket fans will find a way to complain anyway. Let's accept the fact that that's going to happen. No, And there, there is scientific evidence that umpiring favours home teams, even when you have neutral umpires. So those things automatically happen anyway. But I just feel that if we were to go back to it, we would have slightly less moaning than we would normally have, just because I think we've created a system which is imperfect i think drs is still very imperfect but a better system than we've ever had before yeah and um you know as much moaning as people can do i think at this point they'd just be grateful to watch some live cricket that is very true i think that there's a very good argument to be had that if drs is helping off spin then it's actually harming the game but that's just a general rule there but kk thank you very much for coming on 
been a pleasure man good to see you after like i don't know how long thanks for listening you can follow my guest at the underscore kk on twitter i'm also on twitter please review this podcast on apple or on all the podcast apps it really does help us i'm positive it does i'm really hoping that you will review it and then that will help us this podcast is brought to you by patreon and the people who help support us there so thank you to everyone who does and if you can go over there are links to the patreon in the show notes red inca is made by me jared kimber Nick McCorriston pours liquid gold into your ear. And the theme tune is by the Red Cricket. Red Inca listener, don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps.